Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. In this episode, you're going to hear from lead pastor Nick Gibson at the recent No Regrets Men's Conference. In this conference, he was talking about becoming oaks of righteousness in a world of vapor. If that sounds familiar to you, that's probably because that is the subtitle of Nick's book, Substance, where he's talking about how we can as Christians become strong creatures in the way that we are meant to be. So the fuller version of this talk is basically that book. So you can find that book at highpointchurch.org substance. You can find that book and various resources surrounding that book there. Um, and then also, this is a part of the No Regrets Conference. So if you're interested in this content or you want to find more of it, you can go to subsplash.com slash no regrets. Thanks for listening. I'm going to jump right in because I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about 90 minute thoughts and I want to try to talk to you about 40 minutes or a little bit less to give a little Q&A time. Um, the talk today is called Substance Becoming Oaks of Righteousness in a World of Vapor. Um, I came to a um, conclusion a couple years ago in the ministry. I'm a senior pastor. I've been, a, I've been a, an associate pastor for about eight years. I've been a senior pastor for about eight years. And I came to the conclusion a couple years ago that one of the reasons an increasing number of men and women in my churches, especially who engage in um, family life, seemed to be struggling with just dealing with their life, was that I, I, I came to conclude that our culture actually forms human beings to have characters that instead of being really strong are actually really weak and really brittle. And so, um, but when I was reading through the book of Isaiah, one of the things that I saw was that in the time of the Messiah, the people of God were to be referred to by the world around them as oaks of righteousness. It was observational. The, the people who didn't belong to the people of God were to see the people of God, the people of the Messiah, and say that these people are oaks of righteousness. They would be called oaks of righteousness. And so I was like, this is off. There's something off. And then um, increasingly I was interviewing and, and counseling men and women, but a lot of men that were saying, that they were feeling increasingly like their faith didn't work. Um, one of the passages I would use, pretty great. Okay, so I'm going to give you a part of this book, Substance, um, Becoming Oaks of Righteousness in a World of Vapor. Um, you can get it on Amazon. I don't have copies with me today. The Kindle version is like four bucks. Um, but you can, you can listen to the whole book on audio at the Engaged Equip podcast. If you go back far enough, we have the whole thing on audio. You can listen to for free as well as episodes of that podcast. And that's my email if you want to email me. Um, I would read this verse to people. I'd say, okay, let me read this to you. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And then I would, I would say, okay, when I read that to you, what is the first emotion that you feel? Right? Which guys, of course, love being asked that. And... Um, Generally speaking, this is what I would find, is that most of the time these were people who were Christians for a long time and were people who the church would think, oh yeah, they're great, they're great Christians, right? That the first time they'd read that verse, or early on in their Christian life when they read that verse, it was really great. They'd be like, oh, that's so great, Jesus, right? But later on, when I would read that to them, the first emotion that they would have would be something like anger or um, resentment. Because they felt like whatever other promise Jesus made that he would fulfill, like justifying their sins or preparing a place for them in heaven or whatever, that this, this promise felt like he was empirically not fulfilling for them. Because they did not feel at peace. And um, so I began to realize that, that and I, I felt this myself too, that for a, it seemed like an increasing number of people, I would think, were definitely Christians, were deep believers, had read much. Like, you wouldn't be like, oh, they, don't, they only come once a month. They weren't those kind of people. They were serious people. They were, they were saying things like, my faith isn't working. I feel like my faith is kind of leaking out of me. Like, I'm not giving it up. I feel like I'm just, in an imperceptible way, finding it more unbelievable every day. And I don't know what to do. And they felt kind of desperate about it. And so um, I noticed that there were essentially two solutions that were being offered to people that I didn't believe in and that I found were not working. The one is what I'll just call the secular jargon response, and that is that my observation is that among like suburban or urban relatively educated modern people, there is a level of language, a kind of language that is considered sufficiently sophisticated in order to take people seriously. And there's a level of language that is not considered sufficiently sophisticated in order to take people seriously. In sophisticated language, actually doesn't mean language that is intellectually or 
or sophisticated in a content sense, but it is language that uses the metaphors that people prefer, and the metaphors that people prefer now tend to be medical metaphors, psychological metaphors, and technological metaphors. And so, it, so what happens is if you want to be taken seriously, you have to translate the language of morality, spirituality, and character into medicalized, psychologized, and technologized language. And if you do that, then you're considered sufficiently sophisticated and worth paying attention to. The problem is, is that you do something extremely drastic to the human ability to conceptualize things when you do that. Because medical and technological metaphors tend to be mechanistic, and they tend to make you, the human being, passive. Right? So if I participate in the, in the moral defect in my character of gloom, I don't look on the bright side of things. I don't practice the disciplines of cheerfulness. I don't do the kinds of things that make my inner life function psychologically to point me towards gratitude and happiness. I still do those things. And I allow gloom to take control of me. It may produce the phenomenon of depression. What modern psychological mechanization teaches me is that I refer to that in a medicalized way. I am depressed. Right? The minute I do that, somebody needs to treat me. The question is not, how do I develop as a human being to become an oak of righteousness? The question becomes, how can somebody do something for me? So Theodore Dalrymple in his book, Life at the Bottom, talks about this, where he'll talk to somebody who just beat his girlfriend almost to death. And he'll say, and, and he'll ask the person, why did you do this? He's a psychiatrist. And the guy's like, the beer went mad in me, doctor. You have to medicate me or I'll do this again. So not only, not only am I absolved from beating someone almost to death, but I have already absolved myself from the future episode when I will beat another person almost to death or to death. And so what happens then is we get to the point where we start, we get the one benefit, okay? So our faith isn't working. We don't know why. And so now we get to label the problem. And we label the problem with a medical or technological word, and that makes us feel like we understand it better. We don't understand it better. We actually understand it more narrowly. We understand it worse. But it feels like we have a handle on that feels better. Because one of the reasons men don't talk about their problems, it's not because men aren't as emotional. It's not because men aren't as in touch with their feelings. Man, I've been around so many women. I'm a pastor. Women aren't that in touch with their feelings. And they're not better communicators. Most of the mythology about women is just bull crap. Okay? Here's, here's the thing. Men do not like to talk about their problems unless they already have an idea what the solution is going to be. Okay? If, you, if, you, if you're a guy, you don't want to be like, well, I got this problem. I have no idea what I'm going to do. No, like we're trying to keep the tribe together. You can't. You don't talk about a problem until you kind of know what you're going to do. And so the problem with this spiritual problem is when I talk to men and women, they don't have any idea what's going on. They don't know what's happening. They don't know why their faith isn't working. They don't know what the solution is. And so they don't want to talk about it. Does that make sense? And so sometimes it feels better if you can medicalize or technologize the problem. It feels more sophisticated. It feels like it's working. But all you're doing is what I just call, I call morality laundering. You know how like when drug dealers, they like sell a bunch of drugs and they got a bunch of money and they got to move the money, but it's dirty money. So they like buy a restaurant. They don't actually sell any fried chicken, but they say they did all these sales and so they can, they can clean the money, right? What this allows us to do um, on the basis of the fact that it has a little bit of plausibility to it, because some people are clinically depressed. And some people have real clinical anxieties. And so, and so like, those words have some, some clout because there's some, there's some truth there. What it allows us to do is to take all the failings of our character and launder them through medical and technological language so they come out squeaky clean and sophisticated on the other side and we're free of the moral repugnance that we would have to bear. But what it does that's destructive is it keeps us from thinking in moral and spiritual categories as the primary categories of who we are that we are responsible for and we need to learn how to develop ourselves in the image of Christ. Does that make sense? Now, that's in churches. That's basically just secularism in churches. Now, there's a normal Christian response, which is a Christian response, but it is unhelpful for the particular disorder that we're talking about today. And it would be something like the more response. That, oh, like your, like your faith in Jesus, like language David. I get that. Well, here, you should, like, are you praying? Maybe you should pray, maybe you should pray more. Are you reading the Bible? Are you going to church? Are you volunteering and serving others? Maybe you should do that more, right? And if you're from a church that focuses on obedience, it'll be more obedience. If you're from a church that focuses on having a white hot love for Jesus, let's, let's play some more worship songs, let's amp up our love for Jesus, let's, Right? Because, of course, if you love Jesus enough, it pushes everything else out, right? 
That's sort of true and sort of false. It depends on the context a little bit, right? And same thing with doctrine. Like, if you're confused about something, we can clear that up, then you'll be thinking correctly about it, and you won't have to struggle with it. Sort of. Sort of. But it's really easy to jump to conclusions about those things, right? One of the things I've learned from doctors at our church is that when, when you're a doctor, it's very easy to hear people give you a couple of symptoms and then you jump to conclusions about what's actually ailing them. So for example, if you're a doctor and everybody's getting sinus infections, somebody will come in and they'll be like, you know, they look really sick and they're like, oh, my sinuses are blocked, blah, blah, blah. And you'll be like, oh, you got a sinus infection. And you give them the antibiotics. The problem is they can have something else. There's like five more questions you need to ask to make sure it's not a bunch of other things. You don't need just three symptoms. You need like 10 symptoms. You need to make for, for sure, because otherwise you can miss something that's really important. Treat the badly, essentially you have malpractice, and they'll be sicker in the long run. Does that make sense? Now, what I found was, is once I got a handle on what I thought was ailing these men and women that I was talking to, I started looking in the Bible at as long a list of symptoms as I could get, okay? Because I wanted to get a bunch of symptoms. And the way I started doing this in counseling sessions, when people would start listing one of the symptoms, I'd get out my list and I'd read them the rest of the symptoms. I'd say, do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? This is part of the list I would read. Do you feel, like when you describe your faith, do you feel like your faith is being choked or smothered or suffocated? Emotionally. You're like, you got to think about this emotionally, right? Are you feel fearful, anxious, or worried a lot more than you think you should be? especially related to your faith and thinking about responsibilities that your faith stresses on towards your life morally. Do you feel resentful towards God and the things that you're responsible for? Do you feel worn out, fragile, or ready to explode? My assistant, Jill Reese, said it this way. She said, it's a weariness that isn't cured or helped by rest. A weariness that isn't helped by rest. So you, like, you feel like you're burnt out, and so you take a couple of days to really rest, and you go back to whatever it is you're doing, and you really don't feel better. Right? Or I'm torn between what I want to do and what I should do. Emotionally, I feel like I'm being pulled into a different direction. I find myself craving novelty, delicacy, amusement, or the exotic in order to be happy. It's especially bad if it's with your wife. Seven is I feel a lack of fulfillment and motivation into the regular tasks, responsibilities, and roles of my life. Eight, I seem to act more compulsively and without thinking that I would expect. There's a, there's a number of things, okay? Now, what I normally tell people, so oftentimes when I read that list of these people, they'll go, where's your wizard hat? Like, how can you know this much? Right? And I go, okay. Because Jesus talks about this on every page of the Bible. Here's the, here's the good news. The good news is the problem is probably not your faith. It's probably not that you don't sincerely believe in Jesus or that you're not converted or that you're not saved or that you're not justified. That's not the problem. It's probably not your belief in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. Okay? The problem actually but here's the bad news. The problem isn't your first religion in Jesus. The problem is that you have a second religion that you don't realize you have. Okay? You have two religions, and they're tearing you apart. That's the problem. Now, the biblical word that we tend to use for this, or theological word we tend to use, is the word worldliness. Now, the minute I say the word worldliness, there's certain people in the that are already shutting me down. Because what? I just used a word that is located where? In the Bible, no. I used a word that is located below the sophistication line. Because I just used a word that's below, that's below the sophistication line, I can't be taken seriously. Because who in the Christian church in America used the word worldliness over and over and over again? Well, it was usually the fundamentalists who would use that word, and it was specifically related to the intellectual movement of evangelicalism. And so they were the people who got left behind in the dustbins of history, right? And so therefore that concept that they used to justify their beliefs about how Christianity should move in America got tarred and feathered with it. And so it's thought of as a very unsophisticated word. The problem is, is that the concept of worldliness, its fundamental relationship to our spiritual lives and our being and our development and whether or not we will become in Christ, oaks of righteousness, is absolutely fundamental on every single page. And once you start reading the Bible, and, and don't just read for this. See, here's what, here's what I figured out was going on. Not when I read the Bible in relationship to worldliness to figure out what Jesus said to do about it. Because the biggest problem with worldliness is our belief that we're over it or that it's not a problem, that our problem is something else. So what I did instead was I went through all the places I could find where, where God or God in the man Jesus Christ was specifically talking about worldliness. And I looked for the symptoms that human beings would have if they were caught in worldliness. 
And I started to try to make a list of symptoms that they would have. And I started going through the words of Jesus and the words of other biblical authors. So, for example, in Matthew 6, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise him. You cannot serve both God and man. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, and so on. So, now, the problem is, is that almost no Christian who is focused on their faith, if you say, do you hate God? They'll say, yes. They'll like, I don't hate God. I love God. I love Jesus. Okay, so what you do is you take the word hate, and you translate it from below the sophistication line to above the sophistication line. And you use the word resentment. Right? And you say, do you feel any feelings of resentment about the things God has told you? Right? And so you'll get about half of the people at that point be like, I kind of feel a little bit of resentment, right? Or you say, think about some of the responsibilities that you feel morally obligated to do. Do you feel at any point where like, you feel like you have to do them, you can't do whatever else you want, that you feel kind of a resentment towards those things? Well, yeah, okay, great, you hate God. And they're like, no, I don't hate God. Said, no, you do. Because you have to do those things because God has made you who you are and you feel morally obligated to do them because God is God. You don't want to do them, you resent it. Resent is just a nice word. It's a sophisticated word for hate. You hate God. Well, that's not helpful. It is helpful because Jesus says if you have two masters, you'll hate God, and you hate God. So the problem might be that you have two masters, and they're like, oh. right? It's, right? Okay, so or in this one, Jesus said to take his yoke, but what we don't pay attention to is the symptoms. So if we didn't take Jesus' yoke on us, and we were left in the state of not being fully devoted to him, meaning having his yoke on us, right? Like, you can't have two gods if you have God's yoke on you and you're pulling his plow, Right? By definition. So in that state, if we're not in that state, how might we feel? Well, we feel burdened and weary. Right? Now, we just take the word weary and you translate it above the sophistication. Right? Are you burned out? Do you just feel like burned out on your faith? Do you kind of feel burned out on the Christian life? You see? Or you take the word burdened and you say something like, do you feel like your spiritual life is unsustainable? Right? You see, all I'm doing is I'm translating above the line of sophistication. We're much more comfortable with that language. It feels more mechanized. It feels like you could say, yeah, I feel burned out. Because if you're burned out, that's really, that's a biological, medicalized thing. That's like, that's something that's like not really totally your fault, right? And then, then I'll go, okay, so here's the problem. You're burdened because of your idolatry. All of a sudden, that feels like it's your fault again. But the, the sophistication language helps us recognize what's going on, Right? This is the one that struck me the most. This was the, the realization moment for me was reading Mark 4 again and reading where Jesus said in the third seed in the parable of the story, he said, but other seeds fell like seeds sown among thorns, hearing the word that the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. Okay, you couldn't get a better definition of worldliness than that. Right? That is literally the definition of worldliness. He said, this is what happens. The thorns, they come in and they choke the word. But notice what it says. It's not saying, it's, it's working out of the metaphor now. It's saying that these things, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things, those things, not thorns, spiritually speaking, those things choke the word. And so I started using the word, do you feel smothered? Do you feel, does it feel like, some, like, like your faith is just like being choked? And when I started using those metaphors, I saw people perk up. They were like, Yes, it's like that. It's like, I, it's like I can't breathe. It's like, there's, it's like somebody put a cloth over my head and I can't, right? Okay. So you start putting this list together and it, start, you, it starts becoming recognizable for people, right? You resent God. Or you resent what he's called to do. You have contempt for the roles and responsibilities of your life. You feel anxiety in the things of life. You're feeling torn. You're feeling torn in some of your things. You're being torn into you feel smothered, burned out, frustrated with life, wanting to escape. And, and one of the things James says as a result of this is fighting and quarreling. You become easily angered. You find yourself quarreling. Do you snap at your wife and your kids, right? That's another symptom that he says. Now, here's the thing. If you snap at your wife and your kids, it doesn't mean that you're being choked by worldliness. That's one symptom. But if you start working your way down through these symptoms and you're like, oh, 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 oh. You start seeing a bunch of people, all of a sudden you begin to realize, okay, wait a second. Jesus is freaking talking about me right here. You understand? So what's, so what's the problem? What do we do, okay? So if, if you connect with a, a good some of those things, 
the, the answer is, not, like, I'm sorry, but you have stage something worldliness, okay? For some of us, it's like stage four, stage five. For some of us, it's stage one. But you all get stage something worldliness, okay? Now, part of the issue here is, is that people, people read the Bible just wrong. They don't read it. The, the reason why worldliness can affect us so much is because we don't have eyes for it. The minute you start looking for things, you begin to see them. So my third child is physically handicapped. I didn't even see handicapped parents and their kids. Hardly. Like, if there were a, kid, a kid was, like, really handicapped, you couldn't help but see it. But I didn't see the pain in the parents' faces. Once I had a handicapped child, I saw handicapped people everywhere. I saw their parents everywhere. I saw people trying to love them and help them with their needs everywhere. Right? Worldliness is kind of like that. It's one of those things that we feel too sophisticated to believe really affects us very much. We feel like we're completely committed to Jesus. Right? We only have one God. We don't realize we've believed in our religion about Jesus, and we've absorbed our religion of worldliness. Does that make sense? And so because we don't think it affects us, we don't read for it. And so because we don't read for it, we just read right over it. And so, um, for example, some people think Jesus is really hard on religious people in the Bible, especially people who are being like religiously hypocritical or legalistic, which is true. That's true. The question is this. Why? What does he find so objectionable about religious people who are legalistic? Pride. Right? Pride. Okay, but here's the thing. You dig down, you know what it is? It's worldliness. Because they're religious, but they're not godly. Why are they religious, but not godly? Right? Because they want their worldly stuff. And so they find a way to contort their religion so that they can be religious and still do whatever they want. Right? They can still rob widows' houses, but they look good. Right? People treat them with the religious stuff in the streets, but they can still do whatever they want otherwise. Right? The, every time Jesus attacks people for their religious legalism, he, the reason he's attacking them for their religious legalism is because they're worldly. But in addition to that, there's all kinds of places where Jesus is attacking us for being worldly that has nothing to do with religious hypocrisy. In every place Jesus attacks human beings... It's for worldliness in every place. It's not like sometimes it's for worldliness and sometimes it's for bad religiosity. No, all the bad religiosity is worldliness. It's all worldliness, just in slightly different forms. Now, one of the things to realize is that if you realize that the issue is worldliness, the question is, what is the first treatment? Okay, now, imagine you're like on a date with a spouse or girlfriend or something and you're walking down a street, and it's relatively late in the evening, and you see in front of you some people struggling, and you notice there's a woman on the ground, on her back, and there's a man over her choking her. He's choking her to death. Like, she's flailing around trying to get free. He's like, I'm going to kill you. It's her expletive, right? What do you do? What do you do? Right? Here, here's what you probably don't do. Run up next to her while she's being choked and go, be more committed to breathing. Be more committed to breathing. Think breathing sorts of thoughts. Try to breathe harder. Think about all the times that you were breathing in the past and it worked. Imagine a time in the future when breathing will be effortless. Like, do you see where I'm going with this? No, you go, you find a like strong, blunt object, and you come and you hit the guy in the side of the head and decapitate him if possible. Okay? That's what you do. You stop the choking. Stop the choking and she'll breathe fine. Right? And see, what happens in churches, especially cool churches, or churches that don't want to say anything negative, is that you just don't want to, you don't want to say, we need to kill the, the choking. And so you think, well, if we just focus on the good stuff, if we just focus on loving Jesus more, this will take care of itself. It does not take care of itself. It's like standing by one being choked to death and being like, breathe more. You can breathe. Jesus loves you. Breathe. And it's not going to happen. Okay? And that, I mean, think about it. Jesus didn't just wake up most days and be like, you know what? I think I'm going to be negative today. I just think, I feel like I want to be negative. Like the minute you start reading the Bible, you're like, I wonder if Jesus is usually positive or usually negative. Or is Jesus ever negative? Because we talk about being positive in our preaching. Maybe we should be negative, right? You'll realize Jesus is negative constantly. He's constantly saying, don't do that. That is a bad way to think about it. That's believing wrong. This is a bad thing to do. Don't do this. And it's not all for religious people. It's for everybody. 
It's for the people trying the hardest to believe in him rightly. I mean, you see how touched the disciples. The disciples are literally his best friends who are trying the hardest to believe rightly. And he's like, get behind me, Satan. And like, you guys have no idea what you're asking. And then we're like, I think Jesus would be just really positive with people. He is loving with people. Right? Okay. So you've got to stop the choking. Right? Okay, so there's a couple ways to go about doing this. The first is, is that you have to break up with worldliness. Like, worldliness is like the ultimate clingy girlfriend that needs a restraining order, okay? She doesn't want to break up with you. She thinks you're your, her future. She's always going to show back up. She's going to drunk text you all the time and send you pictures you don't want to see. Like, she does not want to give up on the relationship, okay? You have to break up with her every day. Do you understand? Like, you never get to stop because worldliness is connected to something in you. We sometimes call indwelling sin. The New Testament author is called the flesh, Okay? And you're never going to be, biblically speaking, completely free of the flesh until you're in heaven. Which means worldliness is always going to have an inside man in you. There's always something inside you that wants to open the locked door for worldliness to come in. And as long as, as, long as worldliness has spies on the inside of you, you're going to be always kicking him out of the house. There's this great um, verse in Song of Solomon, not Song of Solomon, in um, Proverbs that says, You can catch lizards with your hand, yet they are in the king's palace. Like, Solomon didn't say that because he was walking around. He's like, freaking lizards? Like, that's not where that proverb came from. He saw the lizard and he goes, you know what? There's a lot of things in life like that. Like, if you could focus just on them, you, could, you can catch any individual lizard, but you can't actually pay attention to every crack and crevice in the whole place, and so they just kind of sneak in. And sin is like that, and worldliness is like that, and the growth of the fleshness is like that. That, like, they have to be put down daily. Because they're always kind of reviving and sneaking back in. Use whatever metaphor you like. But remember this about worldliness. Killing worldliness, dealing with worldliness, freeing yourself from the choking effects of worldliness is not like for varsity Christianity, for like ministers or like whatever you want to say. It is one of the most basic, fundamental realities of the identity of every Christian. Jesus said in the high priestly prayer about every Christian that they are no, not of the world any more than I. In relationship to our at-homeness in the world, Jesus said, they, that is the believers, are not any more of this world than I am of the world. That's your identity in Christ. Maybe not your favorite one, but a real one, right? And so one of the things, if you look at one of the key passages really this in Matthew chapter 6, it says, um, there's a section, don't store up for yourself treasures in heaven, on earth, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. And then there's this sentence that we don't pay much attention to because it doesn't make much sense to us. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then a little bit after that, it says, no one can serve two masters. Now, okay, so there's two metaphors mixed together which is generally confusing. And so we read that and we go, huh. And because we like to store up for yourselves treasure in heaven verse, that speaks to us. And because we recognize no one can have two masters, and that speaks to us. And the past, there's verses about worry around that. So there's all kinds of other verses in that section to get your attention away from those two to realize you're not really understanding them. What Jesus is saying is saying, listen, imagine going to war in hand-to-hand combat and you can't see. You literally can't see. So somebody puts a shield on your arm, you have a sword, they point you in a particular direction, you get sent in to fight. Okay? There's blood, blood splattering on your face, you can't see anything. Okay? How is that going to go? Right? And the answer is not good. Like, the most important thing is you have to see first. In order to guide the whole rest of your body, the whole guidance of everything in your body starts with your eyes. Okay? And he's saying, listen, that, that, we, should, that we, we can't keep what we have here And we need to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven positively. And that no one can have two masters negatively. Are the foundational ideas of our identity and what we are in terms of our psychological emotions. Like what's going on inside of us. Knowing what our life is having, what we're doing, what our responsibilities are, how we're guiding our lives. The fight of every day. That working starts with the ability to see that your eyes have light. Your eyes having light comes down to two propositions. One, 
You know that you can't keep anything here and you shouldn't store up treasure on earth, but you need to store up treasure in heaven. And two, you cannot have two masters. Those are the two fundamental facts. And it's on the basis of those fundamental facts, he says a few verses later, therefore, seek his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will be added Seeking first the kingdom of God means that you have to take in both of those ideas. Fully. If you don't, Jesus is saying, you can't see. That's meant to be a powerful metaphor. Do you understand? The ability to have any kind of spiritual sight requires this as the number one first step. This is not auxiliary. It's not varsity level Christianity. It is the most fundamental fact you can understand in relationship to what it means to know Christ. Okay? Now, we're at a men's conference. I probably can talk about this so I get too many booze. One of the things that we are, we are not doing very well in, in our culture is what I like to call my church spiritual brutality. If the word brutality hurts your feelings too much, you can use the word ferocity. It means almost the same thing, okay? And that is the idea that human beings have within us the, the capacity for unspeakable brutality. Okay? Now, the question is, is that all bad? Or is our capacity to be ferocious, even brutal in terms of how horrific our act can be, is that part of the image of God that is twisted and destroyed by sin? Or is it part of what we are meant to be? Because it's fundamental to the temperament of males, distributionally speaking. Right? And so, I think that the Bible puts forward a fairly strong doctrine of spiritual protection. Right? So, for example, in Colossians 3, 5, 6, it says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. In Romans 8, it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, notice, by the help of the Spirit, who's doing the putting to death? You are doing the putting to death. You will live. By the disease of the body, you will live. Even worse, Galatians 5 says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Okay? Now, crucifixion is a cliche for Christians, right? Jesus died for your sins, Jesus was crucified for you, crucified, crucified, crucified. How many people have you seen crucified? Not very many, right? Okay, so think about this for a second. The best way probably to visualize the flesh as a part of you is to imagine another human being that looks identical to you, okay? So imagine you looking at yourself. He looks like you, he moves like you, he talks like you, and it is your job to crucify him. Okay? To kill him in the most brutal, the most painful, the most bloody, the most humiliating way possible. It is your job to strip him naked, to hold him down, and to nail him to wood until he bleeds to death. Okay? And while you're grabbing him and trying to hold him down, he's screaming at you. You need me. You'll never be happy without me. You'll never be complete without me. I am your future. And it's your job, while he's screaming at you, to take and to stick it in the most likely place to sever an artery, and to nail that through his arm into the wood. And to do that again and again until the screaming stops. Until you have little pieces of forearm bone fragments stuck in your skin, and you have blood covering your whole body. You see, everybody likes the living and dying until the third question. Will you accept that Jesus died for you? Will you accept that you have to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus? That in following Jesus, you die. It's harder, but yes. And the third is, will you kill the flesh for Jesus? See, some, some of you probably had a visceral, like, oh my, can we say that? But think about this. Who are you supposed to kill? What, what enemy is there in the world that your brutality, your capacity for brutality, can be entire 100% unleashed upon? Right? Think about the people you really hate. Okay, sorry, sophisticated word. The people who you resent. Okay? Are they like, you know, like ISIS terrorists or MSNBC hosts or Republicans or like people on, like Fox News? Like, I don't know what it is, right? Like interpolitical hatred is the biggest hatred in America right now. Right? So like, think about somebody who you really do kind of hate. Right? Can, you, can your brutality be unleashed upon them entirely? And the answer is, of course, Christianly speaking, no. Right? Because intermixed with whatever there is to hate about them, if let's assume you're right about that, 
Intermixed with that is the image of God. They bear the image of God. And that's there. And so there is something in them that is redeemable. Right? And so to unleash your brutality against them entirely is to destroy what you hate, which may or may not be, you may or may not be right to hate, and the image of God himself. But there is something, there is an object of our, for our brutality that has no redeeming quality and is destroying the thing that is of the greatest value in the universe in which Jesus Christ himself came and died to save. And that is the image of God in you. What the Bible calls the flesh or the sinful nature, that which is the part of us that loves our sin and that wants worldliness and wants to live glandularly at every moment and do whatever we feel like and not to live and not to grow and develop as oaks of righteousness. That part of you, that is your cancer. It's not part of you. It's just in you, killing you, and it's your job to kill it with the power of the Spirit and the truth of the gospel and the single-mindedness that Jesus calls us to, to put on a yoke and take up our cross and to put our hands in the plow. One of the questions that everybody has to ask themselves is, John Owen said, if you're not killing sin, sin will be killing you. If, he said, if, you, if your job is to kill someone and you leave off striking before they cease living, you've only done half your work. And so the, one of the questions you have to ask is, what are you prepared to do? I'm not intentionally quoting the... Um, the Chicago Way movie, but they do say that in there, right? Like, in Acts 19, a bunch of people in Ephesus get saved, and they want to be free of the occultic practices that they're involved in, and they burn, what, if you do the math on the money, they burn $4 million worth of occult scrolls to be free. They don't sell them and redeem the money, but somebody else will be enslaved by the occult practices Written about them. They burned them. It's over, right? In a number of times, twice in Matthew's gospel, two different places, he said, listen, if your right hand causes you to sin, you cut your hand off. If your, one of your sin, eyes causes you to sin, gouge your eye out. Okay, but you think that's hyperbole. It is hyperbole. Very good. But here's the problem. The point of hyperbole is to overstate a point we don't take seriously enough. What is that point? You see, it doesn't, like, it's like when people say hell is metaphorical. Okay, okay, let's stipulate for a second hell is metaphorical. Let's say every statement in the Bible about hell is metaphorical. What does that mean about hell? Well, it's metaphorical. No, what it means about hell is hell is worse. It means it's worse than the literal descriptions. I mean, when you use metaphorical descriptions like that, it's because they're not, you don't have language for it. Like, it's, it's not enough. You just do the best you can. You come up with an image that's terrible enough. It's the best you can do. If hell is, metaf is metaphorically described in the Bible, its actualization is worse than any of the descriptions in the Bible. You can't hide behind linguistic toys. These are categories, but the categories still mean something. What does the hyperbole of gouge out your eye mean? It means that you and I, in our normal spiritual lives, as we exist today, we are not nearly ready to engage in the spiritual brutality necessary to be free. Because of that, we remain weak and brittle and vaporous creatures, and we don't become the oaks of righteousness. And then when life requires strength of us, instead of our boughs just waving a little bit in its winds, we snap and we shatter and we get all the symptoms, and we say that we're depressed, and we think that that's just a medical thing, we have no idea that we have invested in 25 or 40 or 15 years of weakness in our being, and that we're just not formidable enough creatures to live life. And Jesus is preparing you for existence in a, t in a place where the weight of glory is so much that you might not even be able to breathe its air right now. So in the book, I don't have time to talk about this now because I want to I want to do Q and A for a couple of minutes. Is I say in order for you to have a a whole Christian character and not leave big gaping holes for worldliness to sneak in wherever it wants to, you need to focus on these four marks of spirituality: self-sacrificial love, the development of the mind of Christ, virtuous freedom, which I don't have time to explain right now, and being in step with the Spirit. And I encourage people to pursue that through four spiritual pursuits. One is learning to embrace the ordinary. Welcome the ordinary in your life. Two, to learn to escape diversion, to learn how to embrace discipline, and then to belong to the formational community, which, by which I mean the local church. The culture is a deformational community, and Jesus created an alternative formational community for you 
Because we tend to become like the people we're with, especially like the people we eat with, to quote Tim Keller. So that's really all I have time for. But I want to leave you with this encouragement. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through the power of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. Because of this, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Because if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed of past sin. Therefore, friends, Make every effort to make your calling and election sure. Because if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the glorious kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've got a few minutes left if you have any questions.
because I, I think human beings don't know how to be human anymore. Bigquist truly translated so much into like mechanistic kinds of languages, and we just don't even understand ourselves. Yeah, absolutely right. And so, um, it, so what I have to do is I take these like extremely simple concepts and I re-explain them to humanity. Like I, if that's what I do. That's my whole ministry. That's what I do as, as a dad. That's what I do in preaching too. Is I just take like I mean, what could be more elementary than the concept we just talked about? So it should be so obvious, but it's not. Like I just I did a sermon about a month ago on how human beings have feelings and how that relates to our love for God. That if somebody tells you God loves you and it does nothing for you emotionally, all that means is you might be an emotionally healthy human being. Because that's not how you feel love. You feel love through entering into a relationship with another being. You know who they are. You know who you are. You know what's transpired between you. That something of, of like gravity has happened. And it's in that that you begin to develop feelings of love. And people are like, oh. So what I try to do with my kids is I try to explain to them that, that how it why is it like that? How does it function? Or even if I don't know God's reason, some reasons that might be some of God's reasons for something. And um, that's how I've tried to explain romance and sexuality to my kids. And um, so far, my girls are just completely not boy crazy, but they are feminine. They t- like, they're in a good place, it seems like. Um, but honestly, for a lot of it is you have to have the courage to break their dangerous disputes. I can't tell you how many really godly dads I know who have not controlled the, the iPad portal. And there's so much vulgarity. Um, and what kids don't understand is that it's not just access to information that matters in your formation, but it's the order. You have to get things in the right order. So like stuff about sexuality that people want to dump on you on the internet, I can hear that stuff and it doesn't screw with me. But that's because I know all the, all the things that come before that in the right order, and then I hear that last thing, and that doesn't screw with me. If you're a kid and you don't know all 1 through 20, and then this vulgarity gets dumped on you, it screws with everything else, right? But think about this. Why the apple? Or, like, why the fruit in the garden? Like, we know from Genesis 1 that God is going to send them out into the whole world. They're not ever supposed to live in the garden forever, right? We know that. And yet... God gives them this fruit and says, don't eat this, right? Why? So what I think is right is because that, app, that apple or that fruit was lesson number one. Lesson number one of all that a human being can know is you start with you have to trust God. Okay, if we get lesson one done, we can move on to lesson two. The problem is humanity wouldn't learn lesson one, and we've been unlearning it all the way through. So we'll talk about is we still haven't learned lesson one, right? And, and what screwed up humanity was we wouldn't get our knowledge in the right order. And so if you don't cut off the portal of the vulgarity, that vulgarity comes in and it messes with a kid's ability to develop knowledge and order. And so, like, when I told my daughter that, I said, listen, sweetie, the reason I don't want you to watch this stuff, however you want to watch it, is because when you get knowledge out of order, it tends to deform your understanding of the world, and it, it tends to make God's truth harder to realize or understand. And she's kind of like, she didn't understand why I wouldn't let her watch stuff. But when I explained the diagnostics of it to her, she was like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. If I learn this about sex before I know this about sex. I'll think this rather than that. And she's like, yeah, I guess that, that makes And I was able to give her an example. So for me, it is doing the hard mental work of coming up with good diagnostic explanations, which I developed for myself because I would have never been able to stay true to Jesus if I didn't try to figure out why the heck you would do some of this stuff. So I'm not very trusting by nature. So that is spiritual mortality. Yeah, you have to teach that to kids. You have to teach yeah. some explanations. Because ultimately, they have to take the hammer in their hands. You can't do it for them. They have to kill their flesh. And so, yeah, all we can be is the schoolmaster that leads them to Christ. Uh, so I just try to show them myself and explain it to them and show them those passages. Tell them to read my book. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I'm just curious. Um, so when you say we need to take it in our hands to crucify the flesh, are you just yeah, take off whatever you need to, guys. Are you referring that as a reference to believing Christ? Because that's what Christ died for. No, I actually think there are a number of spiritual practices that are necessary to do the work of crucifying the flesh. I think it's an act of spiritual um, work that you do. So one of the ways we get confused in, in evangelicalism is that our salvational theology, which is correct, says that we're saved by faith and not by works. And some, sometimes the implication we take from that is, is, therefore, there are no works for us to do. That's false. Ephesians 2 explicitly says that there are works. We are the workmanship of God created to do a number of works. Some of those works are the works of growing in godliness, right? Otherwise, 1 and 2 Peter 1 couldn't say, add to your faith 
knowledge, and. So you could actually go to that list in 1 Peter 3 and go through that progression. You start with faith, you believe in Jesus, great, okay. Then what do you add to your faith? You add goodness next, why? Because you can't have knowledge. You're not, if, you're, if you don't commit yourself to the true good, knowledge will corrupt you. So you have to start with goodness next. Add a faith, goodness, then add knowledge. Then you'll realize that you can't do the things you know you should do, so then you work on self-control. When you get self-control, you have to do that self-control over the long term, so you have to do perseverance. You put all that together and you have something like godliness. Then you'll, be, you'll actually be strong enough to love a little bit. So you can do brotherly kindness, but you're still not going to be loving. Not really. If you get brotherly kindness right, then you can become loving. Here, here's one of the things that I explain over and over in my church. Love is not the simplest thing in the world. It is the most complicated thing in the world. And it is the hardest thing in the world. And most people aren't even able to love yet. You have to become a almost different kind of creature to even be capable of loving. Love is the end goal in the sanctification process of the Bible. Yeah, we should be trying to love every minute all the way along, but your love isn't going to look like squat for a while. But the, what Second Peter list says is that not until you get through goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness are you really going to be able to walk in love like Jesus really means. You always do your best to walk in love, but you need to realize that if you stay a weak creature, spiritually speaking, you just you aren't you won't be strong enough at the moments when love is called out of you. You just won't be able to make the gut checks. I know all my listen. My church is full of people who know what they should have done. Okay, it's just they just my church is full of people who know what they should have done and couldn't bring themselves to do it. The problem is not that they didn't know what to do. The problem is was they weren't strong enough to do it. And part of the reason for that is we don't have a spirituality that makes people strong. But if you read the whole of the Bible, you see people becoming strong in God. That's why we can carry the poor and bear each other's burdens. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip. Thank you.